We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com, follow us on Twitter at FDRLST, and make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by one of our favorite guests. That would be Inez Stepman of Independent Women's Forum, where she actually hosts her own podcast, which you should absolutely take a listen to. Inez, welcome, and tell uh, folks where they can listen to your podcast. Sure. You, you can pick it up anywhere uh, that you get your podcast. It's uh, High Noon with Inez Stepman. Um, there are several other High Noon references. Some of them are about weed. Some of them are about... <laughs> so um, this one is High Noon with Inez Stepman. But uh, yeah, we, we do a conversation once a week. Um, every month, Emily comes on and, and we talk through a docket of issues, usually cultural issues. So uh, this this is a an ongoing project with me and Emily, whether it, it regard it, whether it's on the Federalist, uh, hosted by the Federalist Radio Hour, or whether I host it over at High Noon and IWF.org. So there were two major developments over the weekend, or there, I should say there were two major stories over the weekend. The first was uh, what we learned from a filing uh, from special counsel John Durham, and the second was the Super Bowl, of course. And Inez and I are here to cover the Super Bowl, but what I want to do before we dive into that is something that I don't know we do very often, um, but I want to just play a clip uh, from Molly's conversation on Sunday morning um, with Howie Kurtz on Media Buzz, uh, just so that we, we cover the, the this major development it is a huge development and you'll hear molly explain why um and and we're going to dive into with us uh, throughout the week and throughout the days to come because it is so important um and that's why i just i want to play a clip of it right now um and i, I don't usually play clips uh, we record over zoom and i don't usually uh, play clips over zoom so you're gonna have to give me just a second to uh, fumble around like a boomer um but i think <laughs> I think I can get it. Um, here we go. Special counsel John Durham in an indictment says in court papers that former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman paid a tech company to, quote, infiltrate the servers first at Trump Tower. Later in the White House, he conveyed this to the FBI uh, and said he had asked researchers, and this is a quote from the court papers, to mine Internet data to establish an inference and narrative tying then-candidate Trump to Russia. Donald Trump says he was spied upon. This is worse than Watergate in the former president's view, and in such a crime should be punishable by death. How big a story is this? Yeah, it's not just the president's view that this is worse than Watergate. If you want to remember what happened in Watergate, that was a relatively low-level break-in to a Democratic Party office and then a cover-up from the White House. What we're talking about in these latest court filings confirms so much of what we've already known, but takes it much further. The spying operation against Donald Trump wasn't just during the campaign. They were also spying on White House servers, Trump Tower, while he was president. This information was weaponized by power powerful government officials, including at the Department of Justice. This implicates so many people. The Clinton campaign that funded the operation received some of this information, weaponized it with the DOJ, the Department of Justice, the media who spent years lying and claiming that Donald Trump had stolen the 2016 election by colluding with Russia. Those lies caused so much damage to the country. This is so much bigger than Watergate. And yet, other than you mentioning it here and Fox News covered it this weekend and a few other sensible media organizations covering it, it's not even getting any coverage. And, and think about that compared to the, the daily drip of crazy Russia stories. And that's the point I want to put. 
Okay, so Molly, uh, in my estimation, uh, Molly Hemingway of the the editor-in-chief, I was going to say senior editor, but editor-in-chief, of course, of The Federalist and also a Fox News contributor, um, I think the point she's making is extremely important. And Inez, we don't have to dwell on the story um, because neither you you or I uh, specialize in this beat. And by the way, we need specialists in this beat, and there are them. There are Molly and Sean who have been on top of this for years. There's also Byron York, um, Chuck Ross. There are people who have been following this really closely from the beginning um, and have been right about so much from the beginning. But Inez, is that sort of broad, uh, that broad 30,000 foot take from Molly, does that ring true with you as well? You're a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think what Molly said there is exactly right. Uh, You are talking about unelected bureaucracies with enormous power uh, to to spy essentially um, on, on ordinary Americans using that power against first a political candidate and then a president. And I think what this really underscores to me is that we we do need some sort of structural reform in the bureaucracy. I think we've seen that for the last two years with COVID, um, but we've seen it politically weaponized. Right? If you think about um, the expansion of the administrative state in America from sort of Wilsonian beginnings, the, the, the idea was, oh, we're going to hand off the administration of government to apolitical, unelected bureaucrats, and they're going to run the government because running a government well is a science. That's a like very sort of um, you know turn of the century progressive philosophy idea. But very very quickly, you we found that that's not true. You know, bureaucrats have political views also. Um, they want to make <laughs> political decisions. Uh, they're not content to just neutrally administer government. In fact, I don't think neutrally administering government uh, is is something that exists. Um, and Bureaucrats I think we see the same debate too. with the COVID stuff, right? right? Yes, the science, quote unquote, about COVID um, is, is an expertise. You do need to have a, a background, a medical background to be able to, you know, read a lot of these studies um, in, in any substantive detail. But the decisions to be made about a pandemic are not, quote unquote, science. Their judgment, their political, uh, you know, decisions that are made with political judgment by the people we elect, or that's how it's supposed to work. When you talk about trading off the economy versus letting, you know, more people get infected by a virus, if you're talking about, you know, mid 2020 or, or even early 2021, that's inherently a values judgment and a political decision. But in both of these kinds of cases, we've seen that essentially the 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 bureaucracy thinks that it has the right to make decisions that are really properly left to elected representatives of the people. And that's a a really fundamental um, point about our form of government. It's a really fundamental point about having a republic um, with with democratic elements where we the people have a say in these important decisions um, allegedly about our government and how all of that has been circumvented increasingly politically by the fourth branch of government. And it's it's run way out of control for way too long. I'm hopeful that Americans now, because they are so politicized, Americans will now look seriously at curtailing that fourth branch of government because they have grown their power outlast politicians. Um, and, and look, they were even willing to use that power against the sitting president of the United States because his views fell outside of the, you know, the very narrow corridor of what's accepted sort of uh, conventional wisdom and opinion. That, that, yes, I think that's, I think that is absolutely bigger than Watergate. Watergate, as Molly said, was like sort of a low level political scandal that broke Americans trusting government. 
um, because it was dishonest and there was a cover up. But this is much, much more fundamental to the structure of how we're governed. So, yeah, I do think this is bigger than Watergate. Right. No, I think you're so correct. And your fourth branch point is is really important. And especially the way that you connected it to COVID, I think, is important. Um, so we, we'll have much more on this um, as the days unfold and as we continue to get more information. But, you know, we really don't need much more information at this point to come to the conclusion that you, this is on a, a level of scale that is uh, much, much worse, I think, than than Watergate. Um, and what makes it doubly worse is that in this case, the media is so outrageously complicit and involved um, and, and no longer are we in the days of Gosh, I hate to even say this, Woodward and, and Bernstein, although as we talked about recently, Joan Didion, I think, filleted uh, Bob Woodward very well, presciently, uh, several decades ago. So w- with that, I actually think, and as this is a, believe it or not, I, I, there's a segue that I, I don't even feel like a gymnast to try to make here um, mentally. The the segue to the Super Bowl is that I do think there was, there, there were a lot of takes from the halftime show um, and from the commercials that were like, we we are just drowning in nostalgia. Um, millennials in particular are obsessed with nostalgia, and that's why all of these ad companies and these uh, directors are just playing on nostalgia more than anything. They just return to the well of nostalgia because there's nothing original being created in 2022, or there's very little that's original being created in 2022. And there was an incredible amount of nostalgia, and I I mean that in the very real sense of the word and in the positive sense of the word, for Watergate over the course of Russiagate. Um, We hear everything referred to as Watergate, and we see that term in and of itself recycled over and over and over again. But of course, Bob Woodward was trotted out with uh, BS. The, his, his reporting, I think, is highly questionable um, once again. And we continue to sort of, it feels like we're stuck in a loop in American culture. And I asked Inez to come on today because she had a really interesting uh, take on Twitter about the halftime show, about the way that it sort of pitted millennials against Gen Xers, but maybe they're actually not pitted against each other um, when hip hop was front and center at the Super Bowl halftime show uh, with uh, great performances from Mary J. Blige and 50 Cent and Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and Kendrick Lamar for some reason. So Inez, uh, dive right into what your takeaway was from watching the performance. Yeah, I got a lot of Gen Gen X blowback, which actually wasn't my intention. it's it's true that the period that I'm talking about is is kind of stretches from late Gen X into maybe midpoint millennial. I'm, I'm like a fat part of the curve millennial, um, and you're like a you're a late millennial. Um, okay, millennial, yep. Young, a baby millennial. You're an elder um, millennial. A fresh faced new millennial. Um, no, no. Uh, so my my main point wasn't really about Gen X, although I think this can extend a little bit into Gen X. But I, I think Gen X is also claiming more territory than they really culturally take up in this. Um, there's little doubt that, like I'm, I'm in, like I said, in the middle of the millennial generation, and this was definitely the music of my my youth, like my middle school, high school years. Um, even though it, it came out, most of these songs are are either very late nineties or, um, into the early two thousands came out most of the songs that were performed. Um, even though they're gen X performers, because those performers were performing for quite some time, but, and then, you know, anyway, I, the, the point isn't, I think gen X versus millennials. I think the larger point here is that we have these two massive generations in American culture, right? The boomers and the millennials. Um, and this really felt to me like the torch being passed between generations from the boomers to the millennials. We're not going to be treated to even, even all the ads, right? Um, 
it, it used to be that all the ads would play on 60s nostalgia, 60s mm-hmm. and 70s nostalgia. Now it's playing on the 90s nostalgia. It's playing on early 2000s. Um, it, it really felt to me like a massive center stage handoff to the millennial generation that is now, um, you know, sort of coming into their uh, the peak career years, the beginning of their peak career years, right? So and purchasing years and purchasing power, yeah. Right. And I, I guess I, I don't think this is necessarily a good thing. These are like the two generations that probably I dislike the most, um, even though I'm <laughs> a member of the millennials. Uh, but it, it really did feel to me like just like the boomers before us millennials are not going to let go of being quote unquote it right <laughs> the boomers are still yes. hanging on to power in the political sphere and we're run by like even even older than boomers sometimes right so joe biden isn't even a boomer he's a silent generation but uh, they're, they're clinging on to power they're clinging on to this notion of, of uh, quote unquote fighting the man even though they have been the man for decades now well, um, millennials are the same. We're repeating the same pattern, right? It's don't trust anyone over 30, except now that we're in our thirties, um, we're going to cling to the notion that we are the, we are it. We are the center of pop culture. We're the center of purchasing power. We're going to wallow in our nostalgia forever at the expense of the two smaller generations, Gen X and, um, zoomers coming up behind us. Well, I think I'm curious what you think about this. You said you got a lot of backlash from Gen X and to some extent, it feels to me as though Gen X never got to be it, um, which is a sort of very Gen X takeaway uh, or a very Gen X sentiment. Um, and do you think that sort of has fueled this, this cultural resentment, um, that may manifest in ways powerful or not powerful at all. Maybe there's something latent, uh, but it seems to me that Gen X feels like they never got their moment. Um, they never, they never got fully because even those gen x that even the gen x nostalgia seems to be claimed by millennials um because the it's it is such a sort of large generation you know here's what i'll say as the olive branch of gen x i i hope that gen x does get their moment um politically i think some of the most promising people um on the right are gen x uh, some of their future politicians you know folks folks like um i like like Ron DeSantis, right? Um, some of those like sort of late 30s to into early to mid 40s folks on the right, um, they they do seem to me to be saner uh, than than their boomer. They get it more than their boomer um, predecessors, but they're saner than millennials and Gen Z. I think largely because Gen X was the last cult, um, the the last real generation to grow up in in. Um, at least straddling the world uh, between sort of pre-boomer uh, America, because most a lot of their parents were either really early boomers or they were, um, or sorry, yeah, they're they're really um, either really really uh, old sure. boomers right. or young silent generation, right? Um, I, I think <laughs> I think in many ways Gen X had the last like sort of normal childhood. Millennials we we grew up with the the culture of, of um, everybody getting the trophy and the the famous like uh <laughs> trauma language and we we all talk like therapists um and i'm i'm indicting myself here although not i don't think i have that particular tick but definitely indicting my generation for for speaking in therapy language all the time um and and they're really millennials are when the sexual revolution really played out to uh its its final um its final conclusion which was 
being accepted as the mainstream and the, the primary way that men and women were going to relate to each other. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Gen X. I, I hope they step up. I, I really hope they don't Gen X their way out of this one, which is to say, they just like say, whatever, man, we don't, we didn't want power anyway. We're just, we're just going to hang out. Um, I, I hope they don't do that. I hope they do kind of both culturally and politically step up. And because I think they're probably the sanest generation. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, and I, I think that it wasn't that, an insult, Gen Xers. There's a there's a lack of self obsession in Gen Gen X that I think has partially been encouraged by sort of being sandwiched between the boomers um, who have always just had so much purchasing power and the millennials who have Buzzfeed. And so before the you know 2010s were even over, millennials were reminiscing and, and wallowing in nostalgia about the 2010s. Um, and, and it's just sort of this this perpetual uh, machine of of self obsession on social media. So I do think there's there's something oddly fresh um in in the way that gen, about gen x and i do think you're right in this that there's they're positioned um well let me read from uh, ben dominich's transom today he wrote last night's super bowl marked the end of an era and the beginning of a new one you can focus on the two quarterbacks in the game following a year that saw the retirements of Ben Roethlisberger and Tom Brady. You can focus on the halftime show and the plethora of ads playing off of nostalgia for late Gen Xers and millennials with artists performing songs that dominated early arts radio. I thought it was great. Um, and, and Ben goes on to say, only the brightest minds saw how it was warping our nation's very soul. And he quoted Charlie Kirk's tweet that said, the NFL is now the league of sexual anarchy. This halftime show should not be allowed on television. We will get to that, Inez, because I think it raises a lot of interesting questions. Um, Ben's headline, similar to your tweet, is, in 2022, the torch will be passed, whether you like it or not. Um, <laughs> there's a lot going on in that and the quarterbacks I think are it's also a helpful way to sort of just think about the transition in our culture to think about the transition in our politics and how those two things might be going hand in hand um I remember watching Candy Shop premiere on TRL uh, Total Request Live and I think it was Rachel Bovard uh who who said something about last night's show basically being a redo of, of TRL. It was a it was an episode of TRL at the Super Bowl halftime show. So Inez, if we just focus on what we saw during the performance, um, I thought Mary J. Blige was excellent. I found it very funny that they went from 50 Cent singing in the club to Mary J. Blige like doing beautiful vocals. Um, everybody pretty much loves Eminem except for parents. Uh, it was just it, it was a, it was just fun. You know, there wasn't a lot of cussing. Even I think by conservative standards, it wasn't and these are modern standards to be sure um it wasn't sexually as explicit as we've seen in the past politically it wasn't even like beyonce's show eminem kneeled i think that's a pretty subtle gesture in these times uh so I, I, all around i thought it was it was a pretty fine performance what did you think of it just Look, as I, a I i loved it i thought it was great i had a good time watching it um i i i'm perhaps a little more pessimistic than Ben is about this handoff generally to the millennials, but that doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy the show. I thought it was a, it was a good um, halftime show and there have been a lot worse. I, I agree with you that the, the sexual elements have been a lot worse in the past. Um, this was kind of wholesome and it's, it's really funny how this music has become like wholesome dad music, <laughs> right? Um, in some way it is a triumph of sort of American assimilation and, and cultural power um the fact that that 
no matter how edgy people think they are or artists think they are, the great <laughs> sort of capitalist Borg will sweep them up and and like repackage it and sell their their um their music or their art in walmart and to like to to um mid-30s moms and dads when they're in their uh, <laughs> it's just sort of a triumph of american um of that like incredible american cultural force that actually pulls wildly different people together the downside of that of course is that you know oftentimes it it, it you do see in it in corporatization and mainstream you, you end up like not having enough of these little communities that are actually taboo um it it takes away a lot of the edge of the original communities um and the work but but overall you know i, I think there, that it's a, a positive force in a, a multi-ethnic multi-creedal democracy like the united states um that that essentially that snoop dogg can now be the the thing that's blasted by the the mom you know dropping off her kids at soccer practice it's 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 um it's a great american thing so no i i'm not here to to sort of um be down on this show the one thing i will say about the sexuality component of it the one thing about it that made me sad was you know i i think that once you attain a certain age like your 50s um you ought to not be forced by this sort of um kind of performance into wearing like shorts that show your rear end you know i i just i I think we we have um eliminated the option for women to actually age and and go into roles that aren't primarily viewed as like sexual or sexually interesting um and that's not to say she didn't choose to do that or, or even that she doesn't look great for 50. She does. Oh yeah. Um, she looked phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I, I guess I don't like, I don't like the fact that we don't have the option for women in this culture. And, and there was a, a, something similar that went around, which was comparing the, the sex in the city women in the reboot to golden girls. Right. And, <laughs> yes. and noting it's that they're stunning. actually, they're basically the same age. Yes. Um, but there, there was just a, a much, there was an option of, of embracing getting older. Um, whereas now it seems like the culture is, there is only one role for women, ironically created by feminism and by leftism and the sexual revolution. There is only one role for women. And when you age out of that role, you're supposed to desperately cling with, with your fingernails onto, you know, being like a sexy, a sexy woman and, and appealing to men in, in that sexual way. Whereas I just, I find that, I find that whole vibe like very depressing and, and very, um, you know, indicative of, of a larger problem in our, our culture that doesn't just have a place for women um, to be respected, but not sexual as they get older. You know, that's interesting about Mary J. Blige, because I think she's actually always done a good job um, sartorially with, with sort of like not being, um, you know, Nicki Minaj or whatever else, and, and often just sort of letting her talent do the talking for her. Um, but I want to have you stick on this point, because you said something very interesting in a, a text message about um, a line from Sex in the City, which, according to my research, is from the second season, uh, episode seven. Um, and it speaks to this Golden Girls versus and just like that dynamic. So share with us, Inez, this line that has apparently stuck with you for years um, that, that has, a, I think, application right now. Yeah, so this is from the original Sex in the City, but it's a conversation um, between... And, and, and it's in about an it's in an episode that's discussing the relative merits of being in your twenties and being in your thirties um, as women. And so one of the girls says to the main character Carrie, um, 
you know, these girls in their twenties are so spoiled. They're so ungrateful. You know, they think they're it. And Carrie very self-consciously as a joke says, yeah, don't they know that we're still it? <laughs> um, I think that is, that was kind of the, the vibe, even though I really liked the halftime show, that vibe, I, I don't, I'm not looking forward to the avalanche of sort of cultural product that comes out of millennials aging. Um, Cause I don't think that we're going to do it gracefully. And I don't think that we're going to like, you know, sort of seed the limelight to zoomers in a graceful way and say, now it's their time to be sort of hip and young and like <laughs> have their, um, their finger on the sort of cultural button. I don't think we're going to do that gracefully at all. I think we're going <laughs> to, we're going to say, no, 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 we're still it. Um, and I don't think the getting increasingly are cringy in the process. Yeah, and, and the boomers aren't doing it gracefully. Um, and, no. and I think that's because the, the attention has sort of always been on the boomers because it's it's huge. They boomed. They they were a boom. There are so, they're just very plainly, there are so many of them, which has, means it's always made business sense um, for the, the, the business arena to play to boomers. And so that's an interesting thing because uh, Eminem, let's, let's just take Eminem as an example. I feel like the boomers almost universally uh, see Eminem as a symbol of cultural decay and i don't know and as maybe you and i have been sort of uh conditioned to have much lower standards for what for what constitutes good and bad in our culture and i'm even you know a little young to have really understood what eminem meant at the time um although as he sort of continued making work into the aughts um i certainly understood that but what is your answer to that question? Is this is our respect for this hip hop? Let's talk about hip hop as an art um, and as an American art. Is our respect for that misplaced and and mostly a function of conditioning to lower standards? No, I'm not. I'm not in the. I'm not in the Ben Shapiro camp of of hating. I mean, look, I I think um, really since it's arguable whether you want to date it to the 50s or 60s um, but pop music is a genre right um i i think it's fine that it's it's not uh sort of comparable to bach um i don't yeah. think that's ever been the point um and i think it's fine that and, and i i frankly i think objectively the 90s were a really great time for america um it, it, yeah. not to say that there weren't sort of the roots of our destruction now planted then and even earlier. Um, but I, I think a lot of the things um, that we're told today are impossible, right? Like the fact that race relations really seem to be getting better, not worse in America. And that, and polls of, um, of all races back that up, right? That people, there was this time in, in the late eighties into the nineties and then into the two thousands where um, race relations in America really did seem, it's not that they were perfect, but, but people of all races felt, okay, this is going in the right direction. We're becoming more integrated. We're becoming more culturally integrated. And, and this music is part of it. Right. Um, the fact that, you know, white suburban soccer moms uh, identify with Snoop Dogg, right. Is itself, <laughs> um, as I said earlier, something beautiful about the American sort of melting pot. Right. Um, so it, I guess I'm, I'm of two minds. I, I, I see the point of sort of the crotchety conservative, you know, argument that like, this is musically inferior. Um, 
I don't think it's as musically inferior as, as Ben Shapiro makes it out to be. Uh, but I, but I also think that it serves, it serves an important um, function in our culture. And actually I, I think one of the reasons that we remember the nineties so fondly um, and not just those of us who grew up in the nineties, but um, I think folks who are older than us and, and now zoomers who are obsessed with the sort of aesthetic of the nineties um, I think there's a reason for that. And that's, you know, America was on top of the world. We had defeated the USSR in the Cold War. Um, look, it, it, it was a time where people took seriously the idea that we might be at the end of history. Um, there, there, weren't, um, there weren't the kind of uh, sort of great power conflicts uh, that arose until much later, um, really until post 9-11 really shattered that, that era, I think. But I, I think there's reasons to believe that that society is actually what is being being told to us now is impossible. Like that kind of America, unashamed, dominant, um, much more domestically harmonious than we are today, much more racially harmonious than we are today, much more culturally cohesive than we are today. We're told that all of those things are impossible or they never existed. And those of us who grew up in the 90s actually know that, yeah, it, it did. Doesn't mean that it was perfect, but this lie that we're being sold that America is incapable of those things, that's not true because mm-hmm. we live through it. We know. <laughs> mm. So there's, it's hard to even know which thread to, to pull at and all of that because, it, and, but in some ways, I mean, maybe this is all, maybe this is all going back to the same place. Um, the, the lyrics, I mean, 50 Cent sang a song last night that, and this was the part that just like sort of shook me out of, you know, just kind of enjoying it when he said the famous line where he was like, I'm not into having sex, I or I'm into having sex, I ain't into making love. Um, and that's where I was like, oh, kids are watching this. Um, and, you know, that entire song, it's, he talks about drugs, he uses the N-word, he uses the F-word, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, it's, it's not like we can flatten all of um, Dr. Dre's work, all of Mary J. Blige's work, all of Eminem's work, all of Kendrick Lamar's work into a, a, a stereotype of uh, pop music that's as lewd and seemingly inane as that particular song is, because all of those artists have done something that has more depth uh, than, than that song, and it is pop music. And I do agree with you, Inez, about the nature of pop music. And if you go back and you listen to songs from the 50s and 60s, um, no, they're not dropping the F word. Um, they're not talking about the virtues of having sex as opposed to making love um, in every case. But there, there are some really inane... some cases where I'd say that's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But there are some very inane lyrics um, and there are some very, you know, very, very frothy and, and fluffy and, uh, you know, vapid <laughs> songs from back then. And that's just sort of pop music is going to, you know, mirror the decline of, of society. And I think you and I are, are of course, in agreement that our sort of moral order has declined since then. And so, of course, artists are going to be operating within that context um, instead of elevating it, because that's how you sell music to people. Uh, But I do think to call that sexual anarchy 
one of the mistakes that the Tipper Gores and uh, I don't know any of those other groups made, I think in the 90s, earlier than the 90s, was to lose sight of the fact that there have to be healthy ways to talk about sex and uh, real people's real life experiences, whether it's with drugs, with sex, um, with race, with class, whatever it is, um, in ways that also mirror their experiences. Um, and, and sex in particular is one where it, this, the urge to sort of scrub it entirely from public life um, you know, maybe, I don't think we're at danger of falling into that again, but when we call that sexual anarchy, it seems to me reflective of an idea that basically is why conservatives lost on this, because they had no alternative to what was being sold by 50 Cent. They had no alternative because they didn't want to talk about sex, period. They didn't want to talk about healthy, healthy depictions of sex. They just wanted to get it out of the public square. Look, I'm, I'm not here to rip on the moral majority. I, I just don't think that it's effective. If, if, if that line um, of thinking were effective, it would have been effective 50 years ago, right? Uh, the, the horse has left the barn on that one. Um, I, I, I don't think it's effective anymore. And as you say, people will gravitate towards representations of something that looks like their life. Um, I, I think what bothers me more than anything is the schizophrenia uh, about it, which which really didn't exist in the 90s. And I think that's maybe part of the nostalgia here. Um, there in, in the 90s, there were, you know, sort of people who were willing to um, to be crass in public about sex and about drugs and everything else. Um, and then there were people who thought that that was that ought to not happen in the public square in the view of children. Um, I actually find both of those those sort of lines, battle lines appealing in their own way. Hmm. Um but what we have now is something worse than either one of those sides, in my view, which is selective crassness, selective, um, complete hedonism and, and uh, an endorsement of complete hedonism and a, a total inability to talk about uh, that, that dreaded word judgment, for example, about sex. And on the other hand, this like incredibly Victorian um, set of rules about what you can and can't say, what you can and can't do um, that, that interferes with, with the most basic sort of dynamic between men and women. And what drives me crazy is we can celebrate, as you say, um, music that talks about sex in a crass way that uses crass language to describe it, that uses crass racial language and epithets, right? Mm -hmm. um, but Joe Rogan is kicked off of his platform for saying the N-word in context, quoting somebody else eight years ago, um, that that kind of schizophrenia of like, we are going to to talk about these things in a real way that reflects people's lives on the one hand, and on the other hand, this kind of overwhelming Victorianism where no one can hear anything that even slightly, um, you know, sort of slightly offends their sensibilities and go on with their day, that I think can't hold. And I do think a large part of the 90s nostalgia is is to go back to a time where people weren't so easily offended, where there were, there was an enormous, um, you know, look, Tipper Gore does not come out of that episode beloved by the American people, right? Even yeah. even the right doesn't hold up Tipper Gore and say, well, yeah, that that you know that's what who we want to be represented by in in the culture. Um, but yeah. now we have, <laughs> on the one hand, incredibly. Um, 
let's call it advanced sexual uh sexual, sexual revolution anarchy. ethics Say no, advanced sexual, sexual revolution anarchy. ethics okay like uh, there's certainly no whisper that it, it might be a bad thing for you know women to have a bunch of one night stands or something like that there's there's none none of that talk is allowed at all in our culture and yet we're going after west elm caleb right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for effectively using the dating apps um, well, in today's sexual culture so what bothers me is the schizophrenia more than anything i have my own opinions about where to draw the line um between sort of realism and recognizing um you know the the both the the beauty and, and dangers of sex um, i have my own opinions on that like anybody else has but this this is just not uh cohesive it's not comprehensible it's completely schizophrenic yeah. um to be on the one hand hysterically offended uh by west elm caleb and on the other hand to you know play kendrick lamar on the way to pick up your kids for soccer practice that's schizophrenic and that i i, I don't think that can hold well let's also say i mean so so charlie kirk is a millennial and he uh, his, his audience is largely millennials and gen z and to refer to that halftime show as as sexual anarchy with this argument that seems to be implying we are heading off a cliff is quite interesting given the sex lives of gen z and millennials which we know are significantly less risk averse than the sex lives were of gen x and the boomers and perhaps even the people older than them millennials are having sex they're even getting driver's license and, and gen z is the same getting their driver's licenses at shockingly low rates they're drinking and uh, copulating and everything at lower rates. And if the argument is that our sexual culture is getting worse and worse in a way that is going to shape children in worse directions, actually, I think the, the argument is that the excesses of the sexual revolution that absolutely, like, was, was Tipper Gore channeling something that was in some ways morally correct and uh, widespread and popular Yes, I don't think her legacy uh, is, as you say, and as, uh, you know, heralded for reasons that you explained. But was she tapping into something that was sort of a common sentiment at the very least? Yeah. And so your problem is not really with the pop culture. The problem is something so much deeper. And that's how we're adjusting to the the world where technology allows for birth control, where um, and I'm not talking about condoms. I'm talking about literal birth control. Um, I'm, I'm birth control pills um, and where technology puts women in the workplace at high numbers in uh, situations where they're working very closely with men in high numbers at similar levels in high numbers. Again, are there advantages and disadvantages to all of this? Yes, of course. But I think we're in caught up in this period of, of adjustment. And that is the cause of the schizophrenia that you described. And that's why we feel like we're seesawing back and forth, because we have been heading off a cliff and our human instincts are holding us at the edge of the cliff and saying, no, don't go. Don't go that far, um, because it's there's something anti-human about all of it. Well, I think this is part of our perennial debate because I'm never quite sure that technology is quite the the driver that you say it is. I, I acknowledge that it's an important accelerant, um, but I also think ideas and culture matters, even aside from the accelerant of technology. And I, uh, once you and I talked about the progression from Woodstock 69 to Woodstock 99, right? Um, that's an inevitable sort of path to take, and, and maybe I'll back up and say, you know, Woodstock 99 or, or uh, 69 would be like 
um, Summer of Love, 1967, energy. all that stuff. Like that was the promise of the sexual revolution that if, if, if we took all the guardrails off of sexual interaction between men and women, then women would be liberated. They would be, um, you know, both men and women would be more, they would experience more pleasure. They would be um, happier. They would be more self-fulfilled. They would, you know, and just basically, um, there were a lot of, of, of promises of bliss, right? Once we take these evil societal restrictions off of our behavior, um, or, or it's going to lead to bliss. And inevitably, it, that interacted with human nature in a way that produced a lot of negative consequences. By the time you get to, to Woodstock 99, of course, there's a bunch of assaults, right? Um, there's just guys grabbing women um, yep. in, in the mosh pit, right? Uh, and and it, was, it was a huge scandal. And, and the question is, how is that behavior not predictable when you take all of the guardrails off in 69. I think those things are very, very predictable. It played out exactly the way that any student of human nature and history would have would have predicted. Um, and now we're just in the next evolution of that, which is we didn't like we didn't like the consequences of 99. Right. <laughs> so now we're withdrawing entirely and we're trying to put the guardrails back on the sexual culture in a way that is oftentimes tyrannical and confusing and schizophrenic. Um, so so now we're putting the, you know, we're calling Aziz Ansari a potential rapist because he was, you know, putting the moves on some girl in his apartment, um, intentionally using boomer language here. Um, <laughs> my own private jokes here, but um, yeah, I mean, I think these things are predictable based on the ideas is I guess what I would say. Yes. Um, technology is an accelerant. Yes, the sexual revolution itself could not have come about without birth control pills um, and, and cheap, reliable birth control. Um, but, but once you have uh, this kind of like cultural commitment to certain values, I think those values matter also. And what we're seeing is the slow playing out. I think the nineties in many ways, um, were kind of the last gasp of the fun part of the sexual revolution, um, before it became obvious to everybody that there were way more downsides than people thought, uh, to taking those guardrails off. And I, I, I do think, again, I, I'm, coming back to why, why are we nostalgic for the nineties? I think there are actually objective good reasons to be nostalgic for the nineties. Um, and I think that's why you see essentially all, all generations <laughs> right now, um, happy to engage in this kind of nineties of nostalgia for different reasons, because I really do think that was right before a, a lot of the consequences um, of a lot of the decisions that were made in the 1960s and 70s, and then the long march of those ideas through all of our institutions, the 90s were kind of the last gasp before those, on the one hand, those um, ideas really took root in our institutions in a, in a like sort of mainstream way. And on the other hand, you know, the last time, the, the last little gasp of sort of the fun part of the sexual revolution where people actually like, Woodstock 99, there were a bunch of assaults, but like, that it's documentary awesome. they made, it looks like a great time, right? At least it looks fun. Whereas now, <laughs> oh gosh, I mean, I thought it's it all depressing. Every, you know, every article, every movie, um, every TV show made about the sexual culture of Gen Z is incredibly depressing. Um, and I, I don't think most people in that generation would actually disagree with that. So I don't no. think that this is like an old fogey kind of no, 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 um, they don't. conservative critique. I think everyone recognizes now that this isn't fun anymore. And everyone looks back to the nineties as like the last time that it really did. At least it looked fun. Right. 
we and everybody wants to claim the 90s um and and i think that speaks to what you just said and and one of the things we haven't touched on is the the obsession with nostalgia that's been going on for a while um of course part of it is because technology allows us to save up all of these different eras um and and look at the pictures and listen to the music in a way that makes us you know want to there are, there are psychological reasons that people get trapped in nostalgia but also because we're at a time when as ross douthat has argued there's decadence that has has sapped us of creative energy um, and that has trickled into our popular culture and the sort of recycling of all this old IPs and, and all of these franchises and going over and over and over again. But what you were just talking about, I want to stay on that um, because Woodstock 99 <laughs> is it's if that was if we had Woodstock uh, 69, Woodstock 99, I think Woodstock 2029 <laughs> would be uh, almost like a Christian rock concert. And I mean that I, I really mean that because there's and I'm not saying that it, that's good or bad and you know generally of course i would think it's good as a, as a christian but i do think our popular culture you know has to have space for um the whole ecosystem to sort of be fleshed out and to exist um but the the point i'm trying to make here is we debated murphy brown in the 90s and everybody was told that you had to think one thing about Murphy Brown. And now this complaint that somebody like Murphy Brown would be a single mother who is glorifying single motherhood on television would be outrageous. It's, it's an unspeakable. But for Gen Z um, and for younger millennials, where Jordan Peterson is like a massive bestseller, where they've had these struggles with social contagion of uh, this trans technology, not even just the trans ideology, but the technology that Abigail Schreier has described as irreversible damage, they're having a lot of really painful experiences. They aren't engaging the risk-taking behavior that would take something like Woodstock 69 and turn it into Woodstock 99. So Charlie Kirksey's sexual anarchy in um, this very sanitized and corporatized performance of people who were very hedonistic figures in the 90s. Um, and they didn't really cuss. There, there's been reporting about how Dr. Dre felt, you know, that he was censored and how they didn't really want Eminem to kneel. And this was all about creating a, a, a conflict-free Super Bowl halftime show that everybody could enjoy, which I think having, you know, mass palatability is a, a good idea for a mass, one of our few moments of, of mass culture, water cooler culture that we enjoy together. But to see sexual anarchy in something like that is is really i think missing the direction the country is heading in in a way that conjures memories of tipper gore yeah i mean i i definitely don't think that we're we're not descending into sexual anarchy we're just dropping out of the sexual dynamic at all at all i mean that, you talk about woodstock 2029 woodstock 2029 is going to be a series of both um sexual and ethnic pieties right um, mm. there's, there's no way you said it's a Christian rock concert. I disagree with that, except to say that it would be yeah. a Christian rock concert if the religion were wokeness. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's sort it, of what I meant in terms of the standards of behavior and conduct that like nobody can I yeah. didn't mean it. I didn't mean that everyone was going to suddenly come around to the idea of Jesus. I meant that like they were going to behave, uh, with the, the, with the propriety of look, religious adherence. You and I are both uh, big fans of Camille Paglia, and I think that she's very right here in something you're alluding to, which is there. there is an important place in any vigorous and healthy society for rebellion, 
um, for uh, for subcultures, for artists, for people who push the the sort of mainstream boundaries um, and create countercultures to the the mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that having that that boundary between the counterculture and the mainstream actually did serve us well um, in both directions. Like it allowed more place for rebellion and allowed society to function. The very interesting thing that's happening now is is the merging of the fringe into the mainstream in a way that makes it mandatory hmm. um, and makes it universal and makes it and and it, it it's a very difficult phenomenon i think to deal with as a conservative because i I think the sort of the if we go back to the battle lines we're talking about right um even though tipper Hoare was obviously a democrat um she she was representing a conservative part of the culture those are the battle lines that we're used to seeing right you have a sort of mainstream more conservative culture and then you have a a um sort of vanguard or fringe of people in a variety of ways counterculture subcultures you know, um, different kinds of art, uh, things that are considered offensive and and um, inappropriate in the mainstream culture. I think Polly was very, very right about the fact that there needs to be like there needs to be a separation between those two things, both to protect the society at large. Like it's a good thing to have the battle lines drawn between Tipper Gore and you know um, two live crew, like a, a vigorous society. And even a moral society needs both of those things. Um, and it needs the tension between them. And what's happened since the 90s and the 2000s has really been the merging of um, of essentially that, that space for eroticism, for counterculture, for rebellion, completely and wholly into a corporate mainstream. Yeah. And look, I, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, haven't made up my mind myself because I started off this podcast talking about that 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 does actually give us something in common. So there are upsides to merging it that way, and there are upsides to this great sort of devouring force of the corporate mainstream. Um, but I think there are real downsides as well. Um, and and I, I I don't think that I think individually we do kind of have to choose sides um, in terms of. But but I think you can acknowledge as a conservative, I can acknowledge that there are real um, upsides to having those kinds of subcultures and countercultures uh, as part of, I think they do make us, they, they do make us um, a more dynamic society. Uh, they, they are usually at the vanguard of all the best and worst ideas. Um, and I, I think <laughs> it's, it's a problem when, when the society becomes so puritanical as to, to try to, to really quash those, um, those subcultures or countercultures, but on the flip side, it's also a problem if those those subcultures and countercultures merge with the mainstream and become sort of yeah. the dominant force in American culture. And I, yeah, I, I think Polly was dead on about this. I, th- I think it destroys both. Well, I was just going to take it back to Polly as we're sort of wrapping up here and say, I, I, I think she has one of the biggest, if only, uh, flaws in, in Polly's sort of broad worldview is that she's yet to really grapple with the way the 
boomer mentality that she celebrates openly um, and explicitly and with great argumentation um, that it opened the doors for uh, the the decay of the culture by making impossible those tantalizing um, moments of sort of sexual chemistry that she writes about in classic cinema where you had you had censorship and working around the censorship um, made art way more challenging and way more resonant and way more beautiful because it involved uh, um, you know, challenging taboos and, and working around um, those lines. And, and when you just get rid of the line, um, everything sort of goes in a way that that's not uh, helpful. And so I think as we're, we're sort of closing this conversation or drawing it to a close, because we could keep going for a really long time, <laughs> um, there's maybe the two camps here are um, the the neo-tipper gores who are are adamant that the the boomers and the hippies had nothing right that they were sort of wrong on in every possible sense and the people who say the boomers and the hippies were right about everything and maybe didn't even go far enough um and polly is sort of caught between those two camps um and that's very interesting but there has to be sort of a middle ground and i do see all of this as a as an adjustment and as a sort of grasping for what that healthy middle ground is um and i do think that the right really needs to have an answer um and we can't sort of default to, you know, we, we have to say, listen, Murphy Brown actually did glorify a lot of things that caused a lot of pain. Um, and the sexual anarchy, um, you know, did also cause a lot of pain. But so too does this completely um, sanitized, antiseptic uh, culture of leftist moral purity. Um, we have to sort of find a way to, to escape from that. Look, um... Feminism was birthed, or at least mainstream, actually um, popular feminism was birthed out of the 1950s in America, right? So I, I, I think you're right that the sanitized um, view of, of life really did leave a lot of, of people feeling um, in some way empty. I, I think one of the, the main... One of the main problems uh, for for these two generations in particular, right, boomers and millennials, I think one of the main problems of both is not necessarily their rebellion, um, but their selfishness. Like, I, mm. I think the dominant trait of the boomers was culturally, obviously there are many like individual exceptions, I'm not talking about individual people, but the dominant trait of the boomers was selfishness, not rebellion. They, they did break a lot of um, sort of the cultural norms, but they did so for extremely selfish reasons. And then they continued to behave in those selfish ways long past the, the point where they were rebellious, right? They had become the man yeah. and they continued to behave incredibly selfishly, particularly, for example, with regard to, to divorce and raising their children um, in intact households. Mm -hmm. Millennials, I don't even think are selfish. They were they're the product of being raised by a selfish generation of parents who in that pursuit of, of um, you know, in pursuit of Woodstock uh, didn't, didn't give their children the kind of basis that they needed deeply as human beings. And I think we've just, millennials are just one level more like evolved selfishness. We're narcissists, <laughs> right? And 
those are like substantially different. I think the boomers were kind of cheaply selfish and, and our generation is so narcissistic that we don't even understand that we are being selfish. Mm -hmm. And I think that those traits are driving a lot of what's, what has had such negative consequences in American culture. Um, and, and to just loop this all back, um, you know, these are the two biggest generations and they have the biggest impact, whether we like it or not, as, as Ben said, right. Whether we like it or not, those two generations have the, the massively, uh, disproportionate impact and will continue to have massive disproportionate cultural impact, uh, on America going forward, because simply through purchasing power and sheer numbers, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that we're going to have to grapple with the consequences of the boomer selfishness for a long time. And I think we're going to have to now we're going to start crap, grappling with the consequences of millennial narcissism. And that's going to be the, the dominant feature of our culture going forward. I mean, and, and just to, to close it out on, a, on a, a joke that's not really a joke, the world is not prepared for the number of navel gazing selfish, narcissistic essays that will be produced by millennial women when they hit 40. <laughs> so. Well, so I think um, the human inclination is towards narcissism. The, the moral arc of the universe bends towards narcissism. Um, <laughs> but it, millennials, so. millennials had these technologies that exacerbated it and enabled it in ways that other generations, I think boomers sort of started to have that. Um, but then with millennials, it sort of went into high gear. And with Zoomers, it's been like their entire existences and they're sort of learning the limits of that. And I think there's going to be this sort of cultural reactionary um, return. Like Jordan Peterson's book was a bestseller for a reason. And every time it's the same reason. Every time I talk to students, they all say that they spend tons of time on social media, but they absolutely hate social media. They nod their heads when I say, I think you guys lack moral clarity as a generation. And they feel like they're just floating in this this uh, existential ether um, or this this intellectual ether where they don't have anything that's, that's true or false or right and wrong. And so I'd suspect that there will be some turning back and it's going to happen under the uh, auspices of sort of uh, mainstream media, legacy media, and our elites, you know, returning to it. Um, and they're going to make it sound like it's it's sophisticated and not at all conservative, because God forbid, uh, the stigma that's attached to that. So I, I, I suspect that Woodstock 2029 um, would be not just sort of uh, conservative in in the ways that wokeness can occasionally be conservative, um, but in in other interesting ways as well. And and case in point, Charlie Kirk and Ben Shapiro have decently sized um, young audiences and people are searching and, you know, Jordan Peterson has a big young following and et cetera, et cetera. So Inez Stepman of the Independent Women's Forum, also the host of High Noon, which you should go and listen to thank you so much for joining us and who is who's a recent guest or someone you have coming up on high noon um so we had david azrad um Ooh. last week uh, he's a hillsdale college professor he's also um personally he's somebody i call a mentor um he, he really he's always three years ahead of me in the conclusions that i reach so um that was that was fun to have to eat crow and say that he was right about something i argued with him about three years ago um and then uh, we also have uh, dave rubin coming up is is the next guest that will be released this week so we have a different conversation every week and then after that is emily back again so um but but every week we have a new conversation um i try to to choose people 
that I find personally interesting. I hope, I hope you will as well, because um, I think there are people who have something different and more in depth to say about our current cultural moment and political moment. So. Yeah. And, and as that's, that sounds fascinating and I look forward to, to listening. Um, and I know that your guests look forward to listening to me, um, as, as they well should. <laughs> Uh, and Nesta of IWF, also a senior contributor to The Federalist, always one of our very favorite guests here. Uh, man, I lost track of time. And as thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you it. for having me. Of course. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. You've been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm-hmm.